So our text this morning is, is one of the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday. We're uh, going to use Matthew's account of this day, um, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's found in Matthew chapter 21. The words will be on screen. We also have Bibles in the back if you like following along, or you could even bring your own Bible with you. You're allowed to do that, you know. So Matthew chapter 21. Now, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples telling them, go to the village ahead of you. Right away, you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the people of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple courts and turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him in the temple courts, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the experts in the law saw the wonderful things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of children and nursing infants you have prepared praise for yourself? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we are quiet together, would you speak to each one of us individually about your word and prepare us to hear the word proclaimed? Lord, open our eyes to see what you're showing us. Open our ears to hear what you're saying to us and our, our hearts to receive what you're doing in this place. Lord, let us hear this story anew, whether this is the first time or the 200th time reflecting on it. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we look at this story, the, the story, the, the, the event that has been called by the church Palm Sunday, 
what I want to point out for us today is that practically everything that happens on this day is a big intentional symbol. Almost every part of it is it is intentionally crafted and orchestrated to make a bigger point, to connect to a larger story. Ironically, one of the symbols of the day that has the least sort of Old Testament connection, uh, the least clarity about what, it, what it's saying is the palm branches. Uh, we call it Palm Sunday, and frankly, that's one of the least meaningful symbols of the day. And only John of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only John even calls the branches palm branches. The rest of them may have been cutting other types of branches and laying them on the streets, but for, you know, a long time, for generations and generations, the church has been waving palm branches, and, and if we were even a, a church that followed uh, more um, ancient tradition, we would use live, you know, actual palm branches, and then we would burn them once they were dry, and that would be our ashes for Ash Wednesday next year as a way to uh, remember the, the whole connectedness of the season. But, um, but we use plastic palm branches, and those smell bad when you burn them. So we don't do that. So instead, we're going to look at some of these uh, symbols that happen in this uh, story. The day is packed full of meaning. It would not have been lost on the people there, but it does get lost on us. It especially would not have been lost, all of the symbols, on the leadership, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, who would have watched this whole thing unfold from a vantage point on the east side of the city where Caiaphas' house is. They would have seen the Mount of Olives and this whole crowd coming down the mountain. They might have even heard what they're shouting. It's, it's not a big valley in between the two hills where the city is and where um, the Mount of Olives are. And, and so you can, you can almost imagine them up on their balconies uh, grumbling and brooding over these things. So, what happens? The first scene, and the one that Matthew makes much of, is the preparation for all of this. And the image I want you to have in your mind is a donkey. In fact, this, name, this day would probably be better named Donkey Sunday. But that just doesn't have the ring to it. And then we'd have to have our kids ride donkeys into the room, and that would be all, um, you know, messy with donkey apples and whatnot. So, uh, okay, so Matthew, actually, he makes a lot of the plan. Jesus tells his disciples, go ahead of us into the town, and right away you're going to find this donkey and get it. And if they ask, if someone says, why are you stealing a donkey? You say, the Lord needs it. And uh, somehow that all works out. And, and he might be saying, this is Jesus acting prophetically. He knows right where the donkey is. It might be that Jesus knows the owner of that donkey. He had friends who lived in Bethany, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Maybe it was their donkey. Who knows? But um, anyway, he knows the donkey's going to be there and the plan all works out. And the donkey is a very meaningful choice. Jesus walked everywhere, you guys. He walked all over Israel. 
He, he went on multiple day journeys, and he's never riding on a donkey. This is the first time a donkey's been part of the story since Mary rode a donkey into Jerusalem, which is an interesting connection. But when he gets the donkey, Matthew makes the connection for us. He quotes the prophet Zechariah, and, and Zechariah is, is prophesying that there's this, there's this king who will ride into Jerusalem, and he will be unassuming. He will be humble. When a king rides a donkey, he's saying, I come in peace. That's what he's saying. Because you don't bring a donkey into battle. You you would lose. (laughs) You ride a war horse into battle. You know, the the higher vantage point, the faster animal, the stronger animal. Donkeys can can become stubborn. But here he chooses a donkey and he comes in peace. By, by riding a donkey into town, by, by calling back what the prophet Zechariah says, Jesus is saying, I am the humble king. And those two words mean a lot. He is, he is the king and he's announcing that he's the king. He, he is connected to the Lord of the universe. He's announcing that he has great authority, but he is also saying he is humble. He's both. His dual nature is on display. He is God and man. He is sovereign and limited. He is king and he's humble. And that's not the way kings of that day or rulers of our day like to present themselves in humility. So that's the symbol that Jesus wants to emphasize. But when he gets on the donkey and starts riding in, the people make a different meaning of it. You see, we talk about the palm branches and they cut some branches and they're waving them and and maybe that's kind of a red carpet situation. I, I don't know, you know, I'm sort of saying this is an important person, but they're doing something else in that story. They are taking off their cloaks, and they're laying their cloaks in front of the donkey as the donkey is walking. So we could call it Cloak Sunday, and everyone could bring in our jean jackets and lay them on the ground. Then we'd all have to get jean jackets, and that would be very cool. (laughs) All right. When they are laying their cloaks on the ground, the people are rejecting, in a way, the donkey symbol. Did you know that? By laying their cloaks in front of Jesus, they're saying, no, 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 you're not coming as the humble, unassuming king. They're calling forth a story from from 2 Kings that is a much more powerful story. It's in the time of the prophet Elisha. So there's Elijah, then Elisha, and Elisha, and both Elijah and Elisha are in this constant battle with one of the kings, King Ahab, and his wife Jezebel, and then, and then Ahab's son becomes king, and he doesn't last long, and then Ahab's grandson becomes king, but Jezebel is still out there, and that's the, that's the, the southern kingdom in Judah, the, then there's the northern kingdom in Israel, and, and that king is really corrupt, and, and so all of the kings, all of the rulers are incredibly corrupt. And so Elisha goes to one of his followers and says, hey, go find this guy named Jehu and run in, 
anoint him really quick to be king, and then get out of there fast. And you wonder why Elisha tells this unnamed other prophet to anoint him to be king and then escape. And then the story starts to unfold. And you realize that this guy, Jehu, is a beast. I mean, he is fierce. So the prophet runs in, anoints him to be king. Everyone tries to figure out what's going on. And then all of the people around Jehu take off their cloaks and lay them in front of Jehu. And they say, Jehu is king. And then Jehu goes on an absolute destructive mission. He assassinates the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and he goes and he finds Jezebel. She's up in a tower. And, Je and by, at this point, Jehu has got all the power and all the momentum. And he tells them, throw her off the tower. And they do. I mean, he cleans house. Every, every corrupt ruler is taken out. And so when the people in Jesus' day see him riding down the mountain on the, on the donkey, they're like, no, no, no. You see, we've got all these corrupt people here. We've got Herod. You know, he's, he's kind of playing both sides. He's, he's, got, he's in Rome's pocket. He's trying to be Jewish. We've got Caiaphas. He's completely corrupt. He's getting wealthy off of all of these people. He's the high priest. We've got Pilate and the Romans in town. We've got all of these corrupt leaders. Here's what we want you to be. Don't be a king coming in peace. Be Jehu coming in power, coming to conquer. So Jesus comes in humility in peace, in vulnerability. And we still want him to come in power. We still want him to come and conquer. We just prayed that prayer reflecting on, on these shootings at East High School and in, in Tennessee. This week I was with a, uh, a group of church leaders and we were reflecting on these things. And the the point of the conversation, honestly, all of us had come uh, in order to just uh, lament about it, to, to feel our feelings about it, to, to identify how we were processing this. And, and that moment of, of connecting to it and personally connected to it, it, it lasted for maybe two minutes. And then all of a sudden, all of these church leaders shifted really quickly into what are we doing to protect ourselves? Uh, you know, do, do you have plain clothes officers? Do you, you know, is the glass on your building uh, bulletproof? You know, how are you locking things down? What policies and procedures do you have in place? Who have you trained to take people out if they come in to attack? And, and, and I understand that those are things that are important to think through. Those are things that are important to have a plan for. It's good to have people who are ready for all sorts of emergencies. I am not poo-pooing that at all. It just struck me that in the moment when the group of us had come together, literally over email, we had talked about, we're gonna come together and just be vulnerable together about this situation. We automatically shifted into how do we protect ourselves and help people feel safe and in control. You see, what we want when we feel threatened is power. We want safety. We don't want a king riding a donkey. 
We want one who can flex. We want one who can intimidate our enemies. But Jesus entered into Roman-occupied Jerusalem on a donkey. Rome maintained a certain kind of peace within its borders, but they used might. You may have heard the phrase Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They used the mightiest military that the world had known up to that point to maintain a huge empire. And it felt safe and secure inside because on the borders it was so violent. And the Jewish people in Jerusalem wanted Jesus to overthrow that. That's the first scene, the donkey. In the second scene, Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he goes straight into the temple. And the symbol that I want you to have in your mind, the image I want you to have in your mind, is the tables. All right, these are tables where people are conducting their business right inside the temple. Jesus doesn't make his way to the palace to confront you know, Herod, he doesn't make his way to, to the Roman garrison to confront Pilate. He doesn't make his way to Caiaphas' house to confront Caiaphas. He goes into the temple. And there in the outer courts, a place that was known as the Court of the Gentiles, his peaceful procession erupts into chaos. With dumbstruck onlookers, the son of David starts turning over the tables and throwing people out. I, I, I don't know what he's doing. Is he grabbing people by the shirt and throwing them? I mean, is he using his strength? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Martin Luther, in fact, made much of the fact that, you know, the only violence that we see Jesus doing is to the tables, not to the people. All right, maybe. But he is making a big scene. Why is Jesus so bothered by this? Well, the clue comes in the things that he says. This is where Jesus connects what he's doing to a much bigger story. He tells them, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And there he's quoting uh, a couple slides down, Georgia. Um, That was Zechariah. Next one. All right, he's, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. And here's what it says. As for foreigners who become followers of the Lord and serve them, who love the name of the Lord and want to be his servants, all who observe the Sabbath and do not defile it, and who are faithful to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. In other translations, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He says, this is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place that welcomes in the Gentiles, that welcomes in people in the nations. That is a promise of the restoration of the world. The the. The prophecies throughout Isaiah envision the Messiah coming and bringing such peace that the nations say, the God of Israel is the true God and we want to worship him. And so it envisions a time where where non-Jews called Gentiles are coming in and worshiping. So Jesus goes in and he starts making a mess and he quotes that. Why? Why? Well, he says it's supposed to be that, 
but you have turned it into what Jeremiah talks about, a den of robbers. Here's what Jeremiah says, a couple verses from Jeremiah. He says, do you think this temple I've claimed as my own is, is to be a hideout for robbers, a den of robbers? You had better take note. I've seen for myself what you have done, says the Lord. And a few verses later, so I will destroy this temple that I have claimed as my own, this temple that you are trusting to protect you. I will destroy this place that I gave to you and your ancestors, just like I destroyed Shiloh. Here's what's happening. Jesus goes in and says, this is supposed to be a welcoming place to the nations. And by bringing in all of this business, you have made it convenient for Jews and you have boxed out the rest of the nations. You've taken away their space. They can't function in here because of the location that you've done this in. All of that trade, all of that business used to be outside the temple in the valley. But Caiaphas moved it in to make it more convenient for his own people. And it boxed the others out. When Jesus is doing this, he is saying that he brings purity, that is alignment with God's mission, when we want convenience for ourselves, even if it costs other people. He's saying we cannot serve God and mammon. He's saying we cannot prioritize our own convenience over other people's well-being, over other people's access to God, period. And friends, I don't have a great illustration of how we do this today. I think we do it subtly in all sorts of ways. I think in the Christian world, we have certain ways of speaking and language that we use that, that makes outsiders feel really like outsiders. I, I think we avoid people who are different than us, who are strangers, somebody who makes us uncomfortable because they're a lot younger than us or a lot older than us or, or, or from a different background than us or whatever. We do little things that are just like doing business in the court of the Gentiles. We neglect to extend and receive invitations from and to our lonely neighbors. Jesus is clearing that out. That's the second scene. The third scene is an image, the image I want you to have in your minds is the image of people begging. You see, in the outer courts in the temple, there gathered many who were blind and lame as the text says, people who were dealing with, with uh, disabilities of all types, and they would gather probably in hopes of, of the kindness of people who were in the temple to worship. You got kind of charged up in worship, ready to be generous, ready to please God, whatever, and then as you're walking through the courts and somebody in great need is asking for something, you're more likely to give it to them, more likely to take care of them. And so Jesus goes out in the temple courts after making this big mess with, with uh, the business that's happening there. And the blind and lame start gathering around him. And rather than giving, him them, giving them money, he starts to heal them, starts to restore them. This fulfilled a whole bunch of prophecies. Here's one example in Micah chapter 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will gather the lame and assemble the outcasts 
whom I injured, I will transform the lame into the nucleus of a new nation and those far off into a mighty nation. The Lord will reign over them on Mount Zion from that day and forevermore. That's just one of many examples that prophesies this, this king, this anointed one, coming into the temple and healing and restoring people. He offers restoration. But we, we want order, even at the cost of restoration. In the last couple of weeks, um, our friends over at Graceful Cafe have put out sort of a, an alert, a big email, a big notification um, that they're in a tight spot. Here's what's going on. Several years ago, when Graceful opened, um, it was this, this lovely model of doing business. The idea that anyone, no matter what their economic situation, could come in and get a, a lovely free meal each day, one meal a day. And that meal, the cost of that meal would be covered by paying customers. So they sort of had two models. You could either walk in and treat it like a normal restaurant and pay and not give pay a tip and that tip would go towards covering the others or you could go in and need. You could either give or receive. That's what, ha that's what could happen at Graceful. And it was lovely for the first couple years. And a couple things happened. One, just like all of us have felt, prices have gone up, all right? The, the cost of food is, is much, much higher. The cost of doing business for Graceful is much, much higher. And so even with price adjustments, they haven't been able to keep pace. But another thing happened. When you treat people with kindness and dignity and welcome, the, the word spreads amongst the community that doesn't get that experience very often. And so the number of guests at Graceful has increased exponentially year over year. There are so many more folks going into Graceful in need, longing for both the connection that they get and the food that they get and a clean, warm place to sit that they get. And so what has happened? A lot of the paying customers have stopped going. It's a little bit more chaotic in there. It's a little bit louder. It's harder to find a seat. Maybe it smells different than it used to. And so that side of their business has slowed down. Do you guys see what's happening? We want order. Those of us who can choose to go someplace different and pay about the same amount of money and have a nice, calm, quiet, clean meal. It's happened in our own community, friends. But that's not what Jesus is about. He's about restoration, even when it brings a mess, even when it's chaotic. And the leaders, they are not pleased with this. When people start shouting, when kids start shouting, they say, can you quiet them down? Can you let order come back into the place? So Jesus, he brings humility and vulnerability when we want power and safety. He brings purity when we want convenience. And he brings restoration when we want order. Friends, this is the message of Palm Sunday. And so often we put ourselves in the position of the leadership, trying to have it both ways, trying to do God's thing 
but have it be good for us. And around the table, at the Last Supper, Jesus corrected his disciples. We're we're not going to play it both ways. It's going to be messy. I'm going to do something with myself that none of you think I should do. And they all are shocked and surprised by it. And that is all of our hope. The message that started on Palm Sunday found another symbol around the table. When Jesus, on the very night that he was betrayed, took the bread and when he gave thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. His humility, his vulnerability, his restoration. Here he is. Lord, thank you that your ways are not like our ways, that you do not rule as the world rules, that you do not create order as the world creates order, that you restore even when it looks messy. And so I pray, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, that you would do restoration in my brothers' and sisters' hearts and minds right now that you would help us to see and receive our King as he presents himself to us, not as we want him to be. And Lord, we surrender to that King, to you, Jesus. In your name, amen.